You're listening to Powerful, Passionate Voices, co-creating the next chapter of human evolution. This is the voice of leadership, and it's time to turn up the volume. Do you feel lost without a sound? Are you waiting to be found? Have you lost sight in all the darkness? Open your eyes, see the light. Don't give in to all that's around you. This is the time to listen inside you. The voice that whispers deep in your soul It'll tell you the truth, what you already know Turn up the volume, lock out the Welcome to the Voice of Leadership Radio Network. I'm Linda Lombardo. Thanks for joining me this evening. We're live on the air tonight, so I'd love to share with you a couple of ways that you can connect with us. The first is using the chat window that's open just below the program description page on Blog Talk Radio. You'll need to sign in either with your own Blog Talk Radio login or with a Facebook login. Either way, and I'll see your comments and questions, and I'll be able to share them on the air. And I'll do my best to chat back with you. You're also welcome to call into the phone line tonight and share your thoughts or ask questions of our guest. Our call-in number is 310-982-4166. 310-982-4166. And just press 1 at the prompt, and I'll know that you'd like to have your voice heard on the air. My guest is photographer and filmmaker Joseph Astor. Joseph Birdman Astor, as he is known, is considered among his peers as the photographer's photographer. His work is revered for its technical mastery, ultimately made invisible by a beautiful use of light, shape, and concept. Joseph writes, In 1985, I moved into one of the artist's studios on top of Carnegie Hall to work as a photographer. And to give my listeners a bit of background... These 160 studios were commissioned by Andrew Carnegie shortly after Carnegie Hall was built, and for over 100 years they gave a wide variety of artists and students an opportunity to live, explore, study, and create. And they added immeasurable value to the cultural heritage of New York City. During this time that Joseph was a tenant, the Carnegie Hall Corporation began a campaign to systematically evict the artists with plans to demolish the unique 19th century studio spaces. Joseph's film, Lost Bohemia, follows the protracted battle by the tenants to preserve their community and the rich heritage of the studios. Tragically, this documentary is the only film record of the extraordinary studios and the last denizens of a community that inhabited them for over a century. Let's welcome Joseph, Joseph Astor, to the Voice of Leadership Radio. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased you asked me on the program. Oh, I'm so delighted. You know, this story just and the film just moved me deeply. When I was um, when I was younger in the in, in the um, the 70s and the 80s, I used to take classes in Carnegie Hall, and I wish I could remember on what floor they were they were acting classes, and. And just walking into that building, I remember, there was this feeling of reverence for its history and the people who walked through the doors, lived there, and performed there. And and I have to tell you, Joseph, I had no idea about these very special studios and the people that lived there. I had no idea about the um, the challenges that you and everyone else went through. And, and I have to ask you, how is that possible that I didn't know that? Well, you're not alone. In fact, uh, I was in that group uh, as well. I, when I found that studio in 1985, 
I wasn't really familiar. I think I had heard about the studios, but they were sort of a legend. I didn't know if they still existed or not, but it really was, now that I look back on it, it seems like an intervention of destiny that I found that studio in 1985. Uh, my entire life changed, and it wasn't just the beautiful physical space with the skylights giving northern light for painters and photographers. What I found out, after not too long, was there was a thriving community of artists and as you point out, maybe it wasn't so known because the thriving community of artists were most of them well into their 80s and 90s. Uh, and I was a new kid. And it was just uh, really one of the greatest inspirations for me to make as friends the neighbors uh, that I discovered, you know, bit by bit over the years. And uh, there still was a thriving artist community. All I had is dwindled enormously. Maybe there were 60 tenants, whereas, as you said, there were you know 160 studios initially when the when they were erected in 1895. So uh, it, it it was an extraordinary surprise and uh, completely changed my life. I can I can believe that, and I and I want to hear more about that and how it changed your life. I'd like to start first, though, with, with a little bit of biographical information about you, if that's okay. And, mm-hmm. and to tell the listeners a little bit about you, and, and I, I definitely think you're going to have to explain the Joseph Birdman Aster. <laughs> I'm happy to, and and more and more now that the history of the Carnegie Studios uh, seems to be fading into the distance, uh, the name Birdman was given to me by the Carnegie tenants. In fact, one tenant in particular, who uh, I will speak about a bit later, uh, there was a lot of eccentric personality there. Uh, as you can imagine, it just attracted everybody in the arts and arts-adjacent occupations. And the, she was known uh, as the poet, and she did not want her name on the film, even though she gave a beautiful narration through her telephone because she was such an extremely reclusive character that she didn't want to leave her studio and she said you have permission to use my voice as long as no one knows who I am where I am or what my name is so I thought okay you know deal and she's (laughs) the one because I have a parrot who never leaves my shoulder I was named by her as the bird man and uh, the, I guess it became later on the Birdman of Carnegie Hall. And it was sort of a rite of passage, too, because it was actually the Mary Widow of Carnegie Hall, the Duchess of Carnegie Hall, the Phantom of Carnegie Hall. I can tell you more about those characters. But, you know, I felt honored. Like I said, it seemed like a rite of passage. Like I was accepted as a group when I was given my name, the Birdman. You you, you owned or <laughs> held your own space there among all, all the other people. And, yes, I mm-hmm. definitely want to hear about... Mm-hmm. about all of them, and I know our listeners do too. And and so how did you find your way into one of those studios in Carnegie Hall? Well, you asked that question, and we won't do the how did you get there um, joke, uh, but it is the question <laughs> I did. Oh, I hadn't even thought <laughs> about that. That's, thank you. You got me. I hadn't comes even up, thought comes about that. comes up often. But anyway, the, uh, <laughs> since they were not so known, uh it is a fascinating question because how did this interesting group of characters, I guess I'm included now in them, find their way into those studios that weren't so known? They were sort of, maybe it was word of mouth, something like that. I was sitting alone, uh, like uh, most people who were in the East Village in the mid-'80s. That's where there was an interesting art scene going on. And an anonymous person who I was sitting next to just said, oh, what did you say? You're looking for a studio for your photography? Well, why don't you why don't you look at this one? I mean, it was really like, like I said, a, <laughs> a moment of destiny because I, I had no idea what he was talking about when he's in studios in Carnegie Hall. I thought, no, no, that can't be right. That can't be right. And then I saw the space. It had a 20-foot ceiling and a north-facing skylight. Uh, and it wasn't big, but it was deep. It was. It had uh, a wooden, a creaky wooden stairway that went up from the ground floor to the studio floor. And a little living room. Oh, I know how to describe it perfectly for anybody out there who's ever seen the opera La Boheme. It's the set of La Boheme, exactly. It's got the skylight, except for the little wood-burning stove. It's like a, a little living loft and a little sort of rickety stairs that goes up. I mean, it was really a, a piece of theater. Um, and when I saw it, I just, you know, 
I didn't know how I was going to manage or afford it because I was sort of starting out with my photography career. But most of my friends, luckily, I had the kind of friends that just looked at me and rolled their eyes and said things like, don't you recognize a sign when it when it happens in, right in front of your face? This is your dream studio to tear it off to the sky. Don't you think that means anything? Luckily, I had friends who spoke that way and made me realize that, well, maybe we'll forego the practical part about the money, but maybe not for too long, but for now, you know, sign up. So that, Yeah, that, sometimes that you just it. have to throw caution to the wind and follow yeah, your Yeah, and depth. that's what I did. And looking back, you know, I thought, well, that was really, you know, going out on a limb, but it did work out. Um, what did they say? If you something, it will come. <laughs> it was one of those, you know, field of dreams kind of moments where the, my career just started yes. to, you know, yes. do things and, you know, and I... You build do, it. Uh, yeah. yeah, if you build, build it, it will come. come. Yeah, exactly, and that's what happened. My career sort of uh, took off in a direction, and I do torture myself these days thinking, well, wait a minute. I was working in a very specific style that was, you know, maybe inspired a lot by that, that physical place. And I wondered if I didn't go to that bar that night and find the Carnegie studio, what kind of pictures would I be taking? I, I just will never know the answer to that one. But the, the studios yeah, were an really enormous influence. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, you, yeah, know, you never know. I'm sure it was true for a lot of the other artists, too, that really, uh, in fact, I think our mysterious uh, poet in the very beginning of the film says that she probably did work in that studio that she couldn't have imagined doing in any other place. I think that's one of the opening remarks in the film. So it, it, did, um, it did contribute to the artist. And I have to say, when you were speaking about when it was constructed, it was, um, can I interject a bit of history? Please. Being a history geek. <laughs> Me too. Uh, it was built as, not quite an afterthought, but the, the concert hall was there in 1891, and I think it was 1894, just a few years later, Andrew Carnegie met with a fellow who ran the Art Students League, which was 57th Street, and they conceived of this idea of putting artist studios and artist apartments on top of the concert hall. And that's why they look like that. They're classic atelier-style painter studios. And they they were designed by Henry G. Hardenberg. Henry G. Hardenberg had designed the Plaza Hotel and the um, Art Students League and also the Dakota Apartments. So this was, oh, you know, no a very, yeah, and that's really what gave him, you know, this, you know, solid integrity of structures, and he did conceive this perfect utopian artist community. As some of the tenants describe it, they say, well, the noisemakers were in the back, and the hallways were so wide and thick that you didn't hear them in the front, and the painters were in the front with the light, the northern light, and it was all sort of plotted out in a very, you know, the ideal way for artists which I, I think is nice because it speaks to the purpose. There was arguments later on in court and other places that, you know, well, uh, it wasn't uh, really intended for artists in particular or it could have been used for other things. And when you just look at the physical space, it's it's quite clear that was, you know, what Andrew Carnegie's intentions were. Yes, and so, you share a great deal of those spaces in the film, including your own space, so anyone who's listening can uh, can either go to the site for Lost Bohemia, or if they're if they're listening live tonight, or even in playback, we have a slideshow running. And and Joseph, I've got some photos that you've taken of some of the residents, and I've also got some old uh, old photos of the building, uh, the addition oh, great. of the studios, well, you- and then that that um, the nemesis, the plan of here's what it looks like now and here's what it's going to look like. And and I've also taken the liberty to there share... There should be a warning before that picture. <laughs> before you yeah, there should that. be. It's shocking. It's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's really shocking, shocking when you see it. Yeah. And also some, also some old photos of some of its uh, maybe prior residents, some of the people... Mm-hmm who everybody in the arts knows, and even if you're not in the arts, as, you know, if you've been to the theater, you've, you've been to the movies, you're going to know who these people are. And, and, and some, only a small portion, of some of the people who walked those halls, who lived in those studios. And, and you probably know better than I do who were some of its residents in the past. 
Well, I'm happy to speak about that, and that's extraordinary. And when you think, as you were pointing out earlier, how few people know of the studios or even had heard of them at all, the roster of famous tenants that were there since the turn of the century, you think, well, this is an important piece of history. Uh, and I'm also glad you have those visuals, the pictures, because I was just about to say, I think we're very synchronized, Linda, because I was just thinking, how can I describe the place? It's almost impossible because, you know, there was an intangible feeling of walking through those halls. And as you pointed out earlier, you just felt the urge to do something because there was so much creativity and energy buzzing around that place. Um, you just fed off of it. And uh, the physical spaces as well are very, very difficult to describe. And even when I was filming, I thought, did I capture it? That quality of you know being there, that was one of my main, my main goals, was to try to get the viewers who were watching the film to feel like they were in this, many people call it a labyrinth because it was so, you know, oddly organized and as I said it was designed specifically for artists and it is a very eccentric kind of place to go uh, for instance you enter one side there's a north tower and a south tower and you go to my studio which was on the eighth floor by the elevator on the north tower and you look in the elevator and you look for the eighth floor it's not there it goes six seven nine <laughs> which, what what happened to eight <laughs> <laughs> what happened to eight? And it's something about the, the the arch of the stage that interrupts. They skipped a floor. If you go into the building on the other side, on the south side, and uh, there's something called a crossover to get from the south to the north side, and you're walking along the 12th floor, and if you keep going, you're somehow on the 13th floor without realizing it by the time you get to the north side. <laughs> it was that kind of place. You know, it was very difficult to describe, but, you know, it sort of suited all the, 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 the various artisan eccentrics that, that you know that understood, you know that, that sort of design. And I think and you the, captured it. I think you captured it beautifully in the film. It, it and and the reason that I knew that because was when uh, near the nearing the end, where you started capturing images of of all the demolition. Mm-hmm. It was devastating. It was devastating just to watch. What had happened? So I knew at that point you had me totally in the space and and really feeling uh, not only the magnificent architecture but the energy and the creativity there. Yeah, and um, I'm going to be jumping around. If I do, you can always reel me back into whatever our topic was. I do want to talk about some of the illustrious tenants. But since you're talking about now about um, when the destruction began, it wasn't nobody really thought that anything. Uh, as uh, complete uh, as far as the demolition goes could have happened in that place because, well, first of all, it's a landmark building, and the studio has been there for so long, you just felt like it was there forever. You never questioned the fact that it could have been vulnerable at any point. Uh, so uh, I began making the film because, um, and we included a scene in there, there was a, a, a massive pipe organ in the studio next to mine, <clears throat> and I thought, when I heard organ music, I think we covered this in the film, I thought it was coming from the concert hall. This is a big yeah. developing part, pipe organ. And it wasn't. It was a 90-year-old organist who lived in a studio next door with a three-story high pipe organ. Sort of gives you an idea, doesn't it, about the, <laughs> the type of tenants that were there. And, yeah. when and, and she, the space. She, and the space is exactly, I mean, they were just extraordinary physical, physical spaces for artists. And, um, <laughs> excuse me, I'm popping a lozenge. Um, she had died before I had a chance to interview her photographer. I felt very badly about that, and I thought, wait a minute, I think this is a sign. Instead of feeling like I've sort of, you know, missed the boat here and, the, you know, all the sort of illustrious characters have already passed, <clears throat> I'm going to start my film. So that's really how I started. Mm. And I think we are sharing <clears throat> on the slideshow... I think we're sharing one of the mm. the photos of of of, of the, the, of the organ. organ. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I think I, because I just felt that was the most extraordinary to walk into a room in you know a studio where you think this is someone where someone lives, and see this three story pipe organ. It it was just it was just amazing uh, mm. to me. I mean this this is how I think this is how precious and special 
this all was. Even that, and that's only just one piece of it. Yeah, and that and when that <clears throat> and then when that scene plays in the film, it's really a moment of, um, I guess you could say, shock and awe because it it just told us that yes, it felt maybe as though this place was forever. It was landmarked, and we just thought it was secure. But then you realize, no, it is vulnerable, like most things, and you know, like freedoms have to be fought for constantly. <clears throat> so uh, that 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 was a sort of the the, the wake up call. I suppose you'd say when the pipe organ left, it was an ominous sign. I, I can, yes, I can understand, and and I know you were before I I took us down that path. You were going to talk a bit about some of the uh, the 20th century artists that either lived there, worked there, or studied there in the studios. And the and the oh my list God, where do we start? <laughs> incredible. Yes, exactly. I suppose to go back to the turn of the century, and I we show where we pass with the camera the studio where Isadora Duncan had lived and rehearsed. It was um, that had to be what in the teens. <clears throat> so that you know uh, began a long, long illustrious history of dance. I think almost every great name in dance was there was Jerome Robbins, there was Agnes DeMille. Mm-hmm. Martha Graham had a studio there. George Balanchine was there, yes. George Balanchine. And Balanchine, yes. They all taught at the very famous school that was called Ballet Arts. You know, that was the the great ballet school of that era. So anybody who was anybody in the world of dance passed through those doors. And Agnes DeMille actually choreographed, I guess it began as Rodeo, but it was Oklahoma eventually. And it was rehearsed, so you can imagine how big that studio was. There's a massive dance studio as big as a Broadway stage. <clears throat> so that's, I mean, that's dance history alone. And there's a lot of other, you know, very important dance figures that, uh, let me think, and the, um, let me think of, uh, yes, the partner of Pavlova, Mikhail, hmm, forgotten his name, Mordkin. Mikhail Mordkin started a ballet school there. So this goes way, way, way back. And as far as actors go, the <clears throat> the American Academy of Dramatic Arts that had to be there in the 1890s, and that was one of the very first tenants, and they were there for a long time. And you can imagine the illustrious names that came from the uh, American Academy of Dramatic Arts later on in the 1950s. There was the Actors Studio, and I found out firsthand. Yeah, Lee Strasberg. <laughs> yes, yeah, Strasberg. So, and um, I. Uh, found out about that before I started filming, before I knew that much, I had a photo assignment for Vanity Fair magazine, and they sent me the great uh, stage actress, um, sorry, Colleen Dewhurst. Oh, and yeah. She, <clears throat> yeah, it was a great photo assignment, and that she remembered that place. I don't know if she had been to Actors Studio, but she knew all about it. So that kind of opened my mind. This was before I started filming. This had to be sort of, you know, maybe late 1980s. So I didn't really think of making the film or think much about history or anything at all. So the first thing she said, we opened the door. I said, welcome. We'll, we'll start your photo session soon. And she was, you know, this tells you how long ago it was. just puffing on a Carlton cigarette. And she said in that, you know, craggy voice, she said, the memories of this place. I remember seeing Marlon Brando and Wally Cox jumping around the hallway. That was really something back in the day. I didn't think of that again until I started making the movie, that that it was really quite a lively place. And then Bill Cunningham, the New York Times photographer, who has his own terrific documentary, he was generous to give me an interview. And in it, he said, said, I said, what was it like back then? He said, it was a big college dorm. There was loads of famous people. We didn't think anything of it. He had a millinery shop, and it was down the hall from the actor's studio. And he said, oh, during the break from the acting classes, they'd come into my hat-making studio, and Marilyn Monroe would come in and try on all the hats, and we just had a good time. No one thought anything of it. Well, that kind of gave me a clue to the, the ambience or the atmosphere of that place, you know, before I arrived, obviously. Incredible. No, and, 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 no, and no, 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 I'm just going to say, we, we could go on about the, the, the famous tenants. We have a great interview um, with uh, a French chanteuse uh, <clears throat> called Jean Beauvais who talks about living next door to Marlon Brando. You know, And so we have some great first-hand interviews. I was lucky 
that the tenants were not only elderly but lucid because they could tell me anecdotes about what it was like and who the characters were from, you know, back in the day. Uh, so we do have that link. Uh, uh, it's that goes, just amazing. Yeah, yeah and mm-hmm. I was going to add, Joseph, that some of maybe the more well-known contemporary actors that had studied or, or who graced the halls of Carnegie Hall, whether it was in the studios or elsewhere, uh, people like Michael Douglas, Denzel Washington, Vera Sorvino, and and a great supporter of the um, of the studios and at the time that it, you were all going through this, um, John Turturro. Yes, I'm so glad you brought him up because I didn't want people to get the impression that this this little obscure history was in the distant past and something to say, oh, well, it wasn't a wonderful place. It was still a thriving place. <laughs> and there was two acting coaches, one, Wynne Handman, very well-respected acting coach, and the yes. other one was Robert Modica, uh, who features heavily in the film, is a wonderful, outspoken character, and he was John Turturro's acting coach. And, yes, you're right, John Turturro was our champion. He spoke out at City Hall, and he really was... Uh, a fighter to preserve the studio and to, you know, give awareness of this place that most people didn't really know about. So, yes, there was, you know, there was still an active uh, contemporary group of artists. In fact, one of them features heavily in the film, uh, a black piano player called Donald Shirley. And he was uh, Duke Ellington's piano player. And he lived up above the concert hall, and he, he puts, he's a very colorful character, he puts it this way, he says, well, you know, when I was playing with Duke's orchestra down in the main hall, he said, oh, no, he didn't say the main hall, he said, you know, I play downstairs. Downstairs. <laughs> so it was like an upstairs, you know, upstairs, downstairs thing. He says, yeah, this is why I like my studio so much, because, you know, I'm playing downstairs, I just come back up here and sit in my bathtub afterwards. <laughs> Well, it doesn't get more convenient than that. I, I have to agree with him. That's <laughs> pretty good, yeah. And uh, and we can't forget the figurehead, maybe the most known contemporary resident uh, of the Carnegie Studios was Adita Sherman. And she was known as the Duchess of Carnegie Hall. And she was Bill Cunningham's sidekick and best friend. They collaborated on, collaborated on many terrific photography projects. She was the model, and he was the photographer. Of course, she's a photographer in her own right, an extraordinary photographer. Uh, Hollywood portraits, almost anyone you can think of, she had photographed in that studio in Carnegie Hall. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but... Uh, well, I have uh, I have so many other things I want to ask you and so much I want our, our audience to hear. I'm So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm curious. I think one of the things that maybe made the film so special was the fact that even prior to the film as a photographer, it it was probably very natural for you to begin photographing your neighbors. And, and so they got very used to you as a photographer doing that. And there was, was, they were very candid, very comfortable with you. And, And I'm curious that when, what did you see when you, when you first came in and began to photograph your neighbors, Mm -hmm. What did you see from a photographer's perspective that intrigued you? What was it? Um, well, let, let me just stop there. And what, uh, uh, what, it, what were you seeing? It's an excellent question. <clears throat> I mean, when I started making the film, in fact, you just put it beautifully because <clears throat> I wanted to be sure that it felt not like you were watching me wander around and you were meeting, you know, vicariously these wonderful artists, artists and eccentric. I wanted it to feel like you were you were wandering the halls. So we did have a very kind of, I guess you call it, <clears throat> very tame uh, camera style. And mm-hmm. I thought, I'd really want a you-are-there experience for the viewer. So <clears throat> when I went to uh, either photograph them or talk to them for my film, uh, you're right, I had a unique access and trust from the beginning because before I started filming or photographing them, I had known them all, you know. And there was that, uh, you know, that element of trust which... You know, I think yes, it was it was very lucky because <clears throat> some people called it <laughs> called it a homemade film because they felt like it was so intimate. Uh, and I'm glad that part came across. I thought, well, we could have really done some because the place is so extraordinary and very slick <clears throat> cinematography. But I thought it doesn't want to. It just wants to feel not quite like a home movie, but it wants to feel you know, it wants to feel like a a, 
a truthful story. You know, it wants to feel like something that actually happened. And <clears throat> as the story unfolds, as the, as you'll see if you see the film, things happen in real time as I was filming. I didn't know when I started filming there was going to be eviction notices on all the doors. And I didn't know how anyone would react. But by that time, they had trusted me or were accustomed to see me with a camera. So things just sort of evolved naturally, not happily in some cases, but they did expose themselves to the camera, and I think it's what made, you know, I'm very much in their debt. I think it's really what made the film feel <laughs> so present because it was happening as we were filming. It was told in hindsight. Those documentaries, in fact, are with historical footage intercut with interviews. This wasn't like that. This was sort of a seamless uh, evolution of the events that happened in that year. Uh, and they were all open. There was a few that weren't. You know, we have to be frank. There was a few that didn't like the idea. In fact, as I said earlier, one of them actually turned out beautifully because one of them was our, our reclusive poet friend, a.k.a. the poet, who now lets us use her name. But at the time, um, in fact, I said, can I record your voice with a better quality sound? The answering machine messages just, you know, sound like answering machine messages. And I said, I'll just slip a microphone through the mail slot on your door because you wouldn't come out. <laughs> and she says, is that technology? Completely anti-technology refused to do it. So it just gives you an idea. But you know, spoke so eloquently, you know, about the studios. And, uh, yeah, I have to interject uh, here that uh, I wasn't so happy with the quality of those answering the machine the messages. She gave us permission to use them, but they just didn't sound that good until our audio technician said, you know, I don't think you have enough perspective on this. I listen to them, and after a while, it feels like it's the soul of the building talking. And I, and I got the chills because she did, she was a poet, a wonderful accomplished poet, and uh, in her day, she was published everywhere. And she had this incredible resonant voice and way of wording things and speaking. So, of course, it did sound like the walls were, you know, alive, and they were telling you how they felt, the walls of the studios. So it was invaluable. That that part of the film, I think, um, you know, really really resonates. I have to agree. And, I, it, yeah. and I love I love that phrase, the soul of the studios. There there was something about being um, the the disembodied voice that uh, and the messages and and the advice that as it, it was as if something greater than the poet herself was speaking to you. And and I have to I have to ask you this. Uh mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious because you you said she'd leave multiple messages every day on your answering machine yes. that began around five AM. I remember I read this somewhere. <laughs> yes. And and, and yes. you know, advice on art and love mm-hmm. and life and the film itself exactly. and, and, and so any any advice from the poet that, that you you feel like was were just like amazing gems that you could share with the listeners? You know, there was countless, and it was years of messages. I mean, I still have them cataloged. I thought I should just, you know, print them out. Because, yeah, it was really like having a personal sort of guru or philosopher to guide you along. Even though you rarely saw her, I did see her a few times. You know, she did sort of pop out now and then, but I mean, almost never. Uh, And I asked tennis about her, and they said, is she still in the building? I haven't seen her in 12 years. That kind of thing. But she did have an uh, enormous amount of advice as far as, like, you know, the way we're fighting the fight to sort of preserve the studios. And, uh, yeah, uh, she – I'm just remembering one quote that just resonates with me. It's not about that. But I think that during the, the film where we show some of the studios being be, – they were beginning to convert some into office space. She said, one lonely cubicle after another. How can they do that? must be something very new in the way of evil. Click. She hangs up the phone. It was messages like that. You know, sounds melodramatic and, you know, it wasn't. It was the way she spoke. <laughs> That's the way she spoke. So we were very, very lucky to get those those answering messages or the soul of the building, you know, as our mm-hmm. secondary yeah. narrator. Yes, you know. and as, as you were saying bef- uh, just a, a minute before that about taking them and putting them all together, writing them down, and I thought, well, there's your book. And, and so <laughs> I, I I, have the urge, so I just have to say it on the air. There's your book. There's, some, there's something there for you. 
there, there, there really is that they go throughout the whole film, and there's another one if I can remember it. Um, it's towards the end, and oh dear, I might have to come back and find that one again. She talks about, um, oh, she said the, um, yeah, the what they don't understand, they meaning the corporation, the people who are you know masterminding the the renovations, is that there's a community here. There's a living, breathing, thriving artist community here. We rely on each other, you know. We help each other out, or we can be alone if we want. She said, "You can't buy that, and I hope you can't sell it." Click. Yeah. I mean, that's chilling. I mean, just the fact she would speak that way extemporaneously, and you know, luckily the message took it all in. And there's a huge message here that I, I, I hope my, my listeners hear, and I'm, I'm, I want to make sure they hear, about the disposability of of people and things and in, this, in our society, how we have mm. sometimes, sometimes lost sight of... Uh, of really what is value or or we have you know we've misplaced value i i came across a a quote if and i have it in my own notes here if i can find it and this is a poet online uh, his his name is james nichols and this is only a part of the poem i i found and i i hope he doesn't mind that i'm quoting him uh, he said, but in these virtual years, we want instant at any cost. And to me, it just appears our legacy will be lost. They'll dig, but they'll never find anything. And they'll say, they made plastic last forever, and they threw their lives away. And so there's something, there's something bigger in all of this too. This is a, you know, this is a moment in time that, thank goodness, you you've captured so that we don't lose it. And yet I have to think how many other moments in time like this are lost because we don't understand the value of history and the value of the arts in our lives mm. and, and in the world. Well, that's a very good that's a very good point to bring up because as we traveled to film and did various screenings, even we were at the Vancouver International Film Festival, and I thought, I wonder if this is a, a New York boutique story whether people were relate and then they did a review in the paper the next day and then they talked about the film at the very end they said does this sound familiar Vancouver I thought really ah, I mean in other is. words in other, in other words the corporation sort of you know controlling the artists or pushing artists out for the uh, I should read you this I just had in front of me here the um, A.O. Scott gave us a terrific and a really resonant understanding review in the Times. He said, um, he talks about uh, how much of 20th century, as you were mentioning, how much 20th century artistic cultural history is condensed in that small space above Carnegie Hall. And he said, it's staggering to contemplate how much cultural history is contained in this uh, small space above Carnegie Hall. And it is infuri- infuriating though not surprising to witness how efficiently it was wiped away. Uh, that is, uh, gave me the chills as well, because, uh, you know, this is something I wanted people to recognize, and, and I hope uh, your listeners will uh, understand after we're talking about all the the, the romanticism about the place, that uh, there were some serious, nasty uh, politics working against destroying the place. And uh, we realized that uh, we were fighting a Goliath, maybe from the beginning, because, you know, it's it's a, it's a corporate real estate-friendly uh, time in New York City. It was Bloomberg's New York, and there was a lot of things being built, and that uh, sadly encompassed the Carnegie Studios. Uh, and we just still were naive, thinking that, you know, the landmarks, preservation, or somebody was going to come up, we'll find a champion, as, uh, but it didn't happen. And that was, I think, the shock that we were not prepared for. Uh, and, and so, so let's talk about the evic- eviction notices. This is a good time to take this this into that really serious part of, of this story. Mm-hmm. And what was the Carnegie Corporation thinking? Well, it's interesting because I guess I should mention that the city, the building of Carnegie Hall doesn't belong to Carnegie Hall. It belongs to the city of New York. It's a city-owned building, and they lease it to the Carnegie Hall Corporation, who is the tenant. 
that, of course, made us subtenants with very few rights, so that wasn't so good. But the fact that it was a city-owned building, we thought we that was something maybe going in our favor. Uh, it turns out the city, uh, as it was uh, run by Mayor Bloomberg, was not, you know, interested in having this uh, this this uh, wonderful bit of history continue. Uh, and uh, I guess another way to explain it, when people ask me, I think when I do Q&As after the film, there's two questions. People are sort of shocked when they see it, as I think is the appropriate response. And they say, how could that happen? You know, when you witness what the place actually is and what it represented and how much cultural history is there, you think, oh, it's so clear that it should be preserved in some way or another. Maybe not the whole thing, but it should have been preserved. Uh, how could that happen? And then, of course, the other question is, where did everybody go? You know, after the, you know, after the evictions happened, everybody had to leave. But oh, one simple, I guess, way to say, uh, to answer the question, how did it happen? The, um, the chairman of the board of trustees of Carnegie Hall is Sanford Weil. I don't know if many people know that or know who he is, but he's a billionaire banker from Citigroup, I guess formerly Citigroup. And, uh, you know, part of the, I guess, Billionaire Boys Club. And with the stroke of the pen, the mayor could have said, we will preserve the Carnegie Studios. In fact, that's what uh, John Turturro was doing on the steps of City Hall with his protest. He was asking the mayor to please preserve the Carnegie Studios. He said he didn't told all the importance. There was letters to the mayor. And uh, being a city building, being on City Hall, that was exactly the right spot to be, except it wasn't the right mayor for that <laughs> for that purpose. Somebody said, oh, if Fiorello LaGuardia was the mayor, you'd have your Carnegie Studios. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. And so, in other words, nobody at City Hall, no Department of Cultural Affairs, nothing, not a peep. So it was it was clearly, I guess, even a bigger Goliath than we thought in the beginning, even though we marched outside, we did the, you know, the maximum. But then in hindsight, I look back and I think, well, clearly it was not enough. And as grateful as we are to Judge Arturo, we needed some megawattage to sort of counteract the, you know, the, the corporate real estate interests that were there. Uh, so that... And, um, and it, yeah, and it could have been that easy, just the mayor signing off and, no, don't well, touch absolutely. it. Absolutely. It could have, could have been that easy. It, it would have absolutely been that. And then when the um, <clears throat> that illegal third term that, that uh, transpired, we were all thinking, well, if that doesn't go through, maybe there would be hope. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, we were hopeful then that if the mayor didn't have his third term, there would be a new mayor, and maybe we would we would save the studios. I think we were all gone by that time too, which is an interesting thing to point out. The film uh, was complete, I think, in 2010, and that was the year the last of the rent control tenants, the elderly tenants, left. The rest of us left in 2008. So many things happened after that. There was a landmarks hearing from the Landmarks Commission about what to do with the studios and all these things, these new changes, demolition or whatever they're going to do, had to be approved. And that that was another sort of shocker uh, to see how manipulated and compliant maybe the commissioners were on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to say that made me a terribly cynical person. I sort of heard about these kind of things before, but... Um, Let's just say that the Carnegie Corporation hired what who, they called him in the story, and he was actually a lobbyist, and he was, you know, there to find loopholes in landmark uh, legislation to, in order to get their project built. For instance, Andrew Carnegie always dreamed of having a roof garden. <laughs> that is how they opened up the landmarks hearings. And the and, how do, and they of, knew that it, how. <laughs> <laughs> They showed pictures from that period of time and all that. And then, you know, we the tenants got to testify, and so we did make a good uh, a good presentation. But we realized there are powers beyond uh, beyond us that are working sort of behind closed doors to make sure that renovations go through. And one of the most astounding things is that the architect hired to do the renovations of these 19th century studios is the son-in-law of, um, of Sanford Weil the chairman of the board of Carnegie Hall. So I guess that tells you volumes just to just to hear that kind of thing. Yeah, so they did. So they, 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 a they very tangled, yeah, it was a very tangled web. The city failed you. 
the Carnegie Hall Corporation failed you. I mean, so much, so many people in leadership positions. Yeah. Really? Yeah, and then when people say, "How could that happen?" You're right. This is a. Uh, it was. It was daunting to realize what we were up against, what we were fighting against. And and I I remember from the film Sir Clive Gillinson, who who was or maybe still is, I don't know, the executive director of Carnegie Hall at the time of this. The quote was: "Carnegie Hall has a massive commitment to the city of New York, and he he said that the studios would remain." as they are to be used as music studios and not to be used as office space. And that turned out to be an out-and-out lie, didn't it? Well, more than we knew at the time. In fact, we were limited when we were doing the film. We showed that. Um, That was um, our response to John Turturro's uh, activism in front of City Hall. Uh, Carnegie uh, sent the the creative director there, Clive Gillison, to sort of speak about the point of view from Carnegie Hall, and um, at that time, we didn't really know exactly the plans. We knew that the students were vulnerable. We didn't know the skylights would be demolished at that time. We didn't know how much would be office space. They actually promoted, and I, I guess could safely say they were able to get their project uh, uh, okayed by saying it was going to be a music school, and they were educating children. Uh, we heard that quite a few times, so I thought, you know, it sounds like that's not the whole story. Now we know that my studio, all the, the grandest studios that were on the eighth floor where my studio was with the high ceilings, the skylights, those were all entirely demolished for office space. Uh, and a split level was put in so that, you know, the depth of those studios was cut in half. Uh, that is, you know, a massive tragedy, you know, just from many points of view. And the music school is there, but it's in the North Tower in, a, in, in another part of the building, but they do not talk about the massive amount of office space that the studios were sacrificed to make. Uh, that is something they never talk about. And we were sort of, you know, in a legal bind when we made the film because we didn't really know. Uh, our lawyer said, well, after Mr. Gillinson says that there won't be any new offices, you show some offices. He said, you have to be very careful there because, you know, you have to make sure those are <laughs> those are offices that were made after the time that he made his speech. Uh, anyway, it was it was it was much more than we ever thought it was going to be as far as the the demolition and destruction of those studios. I think he led people to believe that they would preserve the spaces and just sort of move move, the, move their offices into them. Uh, sadly, that didn't happen. Mm, apparently, and yeah. Yeah, that, I mean it's still shocking. To so you know, re, re, retell the story uh, that uh, we recently had uh, an architect uh, right who, uh, who had seen the seen the film. Uh, here he is. I was deeply touched by the movie. This was a battle for the soul of New York. Where were the historic preservationists? This, if ever there was one, has an historic interior. The tactic should have been to declare it as such or to turn it into a protected national urban park. Those people were endangered creatures like elks caught in the headlights of a ceaseless New York encroaching on their habitat. So, uh, yeah, when we realized how nearly impossible it was going to be to landmark the interior or to preserve it, uh, you know, we were pretty much at a loss. And this, and, and like this Bill Cunningham always told, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to close that thought by saying, Bill Cunningham told me that I got the chills. He said, "Well, Joseph, this is why us photographers document. Sometimes the pictures are all that we make." Oh, that gives me the chills. Yeah, and, and this so had to be such an emotional time for you and for everybody else. You know, it really was because I think people did sense it was the end of the era. It was really that was really it. There were times in the past where the tenants were sort of jostled around and some were evicted and those sort of things. But we knew that this was this was it. This, this you know this was probably the end. And you said uh, this at the very beginning. Many many of of these tenants, yourself being one of the exceptions, were in their 80s and their 90s oh, yes. at the time and had lived there. For fifty and sixty years, this this wasn't, you know, you you were kind of the youngster with having lived there for twenty two years. <laughs> at, 
Exactly. And I haven't lived exactly. anywhere in one place for 22 years, and so that just <laughs> astonishes me. But also, too, I remember um, I remember one of the tenants showing photos of herself as a young, you know, as a teenager, a teenage girl moving into this studio, and now she was in her, I think, her early 90s, or, or something like that, and and um, and so the the city and the Carnegie Corporation, they weren't just telling people who could, you know, turn on a dime and change or uh, who could, you know, maybe afford some of the other rents in the city. They they weren't telling, you know, people who in in that position to, sorry, you can't be here anymore. They were telling 80- and 90-year-olds, you no longer have a home here. Good luck. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a very important point. Most people say, well, why don't they just postpone? It doesn't mean forever, but it probably won't be too long and just let these people live out their lives. It's really, I mean, the poet says it's the only home she ever knew. And there was, uh, she also pointed out the community there, so they relied on each other. There was, uh, yes, the, the Duchess of Carnegie Hall was a photographer, so in her darkroom scene she also made soup for all the tenants when they were sick. So there was really that sort of community and to sort of like, you know, pluck them out of it at that age, as you pointed out, and, you know, displace them. That that just was, you know, the coolest part. Uh, And, you know, uh, they, Carnegie, I think, was very sensitive to that, uh, but maybe a bit more sensitive to the negative PR that could generate if something happened to one of them moving out. So they handled it very, very delicately, the, the removal of the of the elderly tenants. Um, and they had, you know, settlements and this kind of thing. The rest of us didn't. But they were handled very delicately. But still, I don't know how delicate you can be throwing somebody out of their <laughs> out of their home that they've been in for, you know, like you said, 50 or 60 years. Exactly. And <laughs> and so uh, where where are these artists now? So how how many of them? Um, are are still left, and, and well, do you know where they are? Have you have you stayed in touch? Yeah, I stayed in touch with all of them. I'm sad to say we lost two of them last year at Dita, the Duchess of Carnegie Hall, who lived to be a ripe 101 years old. Oh, uh, wonderful! <laughs> it's just extraordinary. And uh, then Do- uh, Dr. Donald Shirley, the the pianist, he. He passed away, I think, actually the same year, yeah, last year. So, uh, and then I think during the film, yes, we lose uh, Jean Beauvais, the French cabaret singer. And I just have to interject at this point, having mentioned her, that she, you know, Dita Sherman was a figurehead, but the real suffragette for the building who identified with the place was Jean Beauvais. She was there with picket signs in the late 1950s trying to preserve the place. And she really spoke about it as, you know, as her home, to a degree that I think more than most of the tenants, it was really, she was identified with the place. She was the one that lived next door to Marlon Brando and had been there the longest, in fact. Wow. And and, and it was, so it was not the first time Carnegie Hall had gone through some crisis in terms of, uh, well, saving or preserving the building itself. It, It wasn't anything about them getting evicted back in the 50s. It was more about the Carnegie Whole, the building itself, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, we probably don't have enough time. And when I was doing the movie, I thought I don't have enough time in the movie either. But that is a story within a story that almost requires its own, you know, its own segment. But just briefly, and most people have no idea this happened in, in 1958. The building was slated for demolition. The entire building, not the studios, Carnegie Hall. You know, the famous concert hall with those perfect acoustics. Goodbye. Lincoln Center was being built. And even in this case, there was a lot of, you know, uh, aggressive politics uh, going on about Lincoln Center versus Carnegie Hall. And the first ones standing out on the curb were Jean Beauvais and the tenants. And uh, later on came Isaac Stern, who had all the influence and power to sort of seal the deal. But we like to, you know, let people know that this, you know, the soul of the building was always represented by the tenants, you know, preserving it and fighting for it in the late 50s. And then also this most recent time, they were fighting for the you know the, the soul of the of Carnegie Hall. So that that we like to point out in the in the film because it's not it's not so well known that the tenants had such a hand in saving the entire building as well. 
And again, it goes back to our disposable society. Just It's such a running theme here, whether it's people, architecture, or history, that we often don't realize you know, what we've done or what we've lost until we've lost it. Hmm. That is for sure. Uh, although I have to say the the tenants who had lived there, and this was uh, something I always uh, was concerned about. Last time. Can people understand why or how that place is important, not just to the artists there, but for our collective cultural history, without having experienced it? Because it was a unique, odd place, and it was sort of out of the sight lines. If you walked down the street in front of Carnegie Hall and looked up, you probably wouldn't see them. There's, they were set back in on the roof. So it, uh, you know, it was a secret world. And for that reason, I think it was it was doubly difficult to draw attention to it and to you know promote it, its preservation. Uh, it, uh, until people learn about it, that they don't really know you know how valuable that place was, you know for for you know all the arts. I I agree, I agree, and I'm and I'm curious. The woman who used to dance in the stairwell, who who. If I understand correctly, she didn't really live there, but she did live there. And uh, uh, star, star, yes. And and what became of her? Do you know? I'm, I'm glad you brought up star. We can't uh, end this discussion without talking about star. <laughs> I have to say, when we um, talked with people after the film, yes, there are these, you know, more flamboyant, eccentric characters, but the one that people say haunts them, and the one they think about after the film is Star. She uh, she was called the homeless ballerina. Technically, she wasn't, but she did sort of live in the corners and dark little, you know, spots in the studios uh, from time to time. And the the security in the building was always tossing her out in the street. And a nice moment in the, in the, in the film is when one of the ballet teachers takes her into her class and offers her a place in the class. Before mm-hmm. that, she would do her stretches and rehearse in the stairwell, you know, leaning against the railing in the stairwell, because she had taken, I guess when she was younger, she had taken classes there. And she says in this very eerie way, but there's nowhere to go anymore. There, The classes have closed. The, the school that I used to study in is not there anymore. And so she just didn't let that deter her. She just came back to Carnegie Hall and kept stretching in the hallways way after the fact. I think she was in her 80s by that time. So it's a very haunting, very haunting kind of tragic figure. But for me, it represented, especially for people who are, you know, in their twilight years, maybe this persistence of artistic spirit. You know, you just do it and you pursue it. You don't really seem to have a choice in the matter. You pursue your craft. And the wonderful thing about the Carnegie Studios is it provided a place to do that. And I think that's probably what those all those tenants had in common that inspired me, in fact, was that you know it didn't matter if you were well in your 80s or 90s or you or you weren't in the same shape you were when you were younger. They had this uh, yeah this persistence to pursue their craft and their art. You know always. That's, that's what impressed me the most. I was amazed and and how alive they all were. I I think it's a lesson for all of us to to watch them and see how how incredibly alive they all are and because they are living their craft they're living their art and and it's it's something we um it, it's a lesson we could all spend a moment in I think and and I know we're getting mm-hmm. to the top of the hour uh, what what are you on to now Joseph where's your work taking you well uh it's funny we're editing <laughs> uh I do I have Started a few projects after this film, but I did feel an obligation to make some DVD uh, extras because, as you can imagine, it was such a rich subject matter. How could we possibly edit it down to how we did? And, you know, we realized we wanted to center it around the contemporary story of the last tenants and trying to, you know, preserve the place. But there are so many extraordinary bits and uh, tangents that uh, our, our group of characters. Uh, go off on that uh, I couldn't resist uh, we're working on some uh, DVD extras uh, then you can see some of the characters more fleshed out I guess that's going to be further down the line but one of the things <laughs> I guess it's a spinoff but uh, Donald Shirley I have enormous amount of footage and interviews with him and I did want to do not quite a uh, 
uh, a biography or a short film, but I guess it would be more like the world according to or the philosophy of uh, Donald Shirley. So that's something I'm working on now as well. Uh, and of course, I do my still photography. I'm going to have an exhibit in the in the spring in New York. So um, most of my friends they look at me and roll their eyeballs and they say, "Move on, would you?" Um, well, I can't. And when I talk to the tenants, who I'm still friends with, they feel the same way. It's not that your life stopped and that you know you can't keep going, but you know that experience of being in those studios, you know, is, is something that just really sticks with you. So, well, there's more there, um, and you're the steward of that, and and have the means to create it. So there, I, there's no moving on. I think until that's done, it's it um, it's almost that's exactly right. It's its own entity, and it's letting you know what's wanting uh, from it, uh, for it, from you. That's that's how I always see. So when someone is passionate about something, and you know, there's something you cannot not do. You've got to, you know, you've you've got this material. Uh, you've just got to do it. And and mm. if there's something moving you beyond, uh, it has nothing to do with getting stuck. Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way because I'll, I'll, I'll pursue it. And, you know, it, at this point in time, it does feel also like an obligation to history because, as we mentioned uh, at the top of the program, the uh, it's interesting that this coincides, this interview coincides with the unveiling of the renovations, you know, which, of course, Carnegie Hall doesn't want to mention at all what was there before or the studios or what had to be sacrificed in order to do those renovations. There's a, you know, there's a big, you know, party celebrating them and they're on the roof where the skylight used to be and there's a terrace and there's you know people raising money and all that kind of stuff so you know i do feel like well i have to sort of keep the torch in some way uh because carnegie hall um for obvious reasons isn't going to do it i'm glad you did and you are continuing to do so if someone wanted to learn more or view the film or buy buy the film how could they do that uh, we have a website, and the DVD is there. I think there's even a PayPal button. Uh, luckily, I have clever young 20-something interns who know how to do those things, so they set it up <laughs> for me. And it does work because we've had a very good response. But the website is www.lostbohemia.com. And there's some terrific reviews and, and a lot of nice still pictures, and there's even a trailer on there, so if anyone's interested. And there is a Facebook page, which I keep forgetting to look at, look at, but I get notices of, you know, people say, oh, my great-grandmother had studied violin, you know, at, at the turn of the century in, in Carnegie Hall. So you hear from people who do have this thread that connects them, you know, to the place. So so that's great. Yes, I heard, like I heard from someone today as I was promoting the program who uh, posted on Facebook, my husband's great-grandfather lived there in the 30s. Oh, my God. And, and and I, how would I have ever known? And it, what, what a connection that was! Someone you know with whom I'm, you know, I'm acquainted on Facebook to have that similarity. And when she saw the post, she, you know, she had to write and and let me oh, know. Fantastic. So there's, it, isn't that fantastic? It's out there. That is, that is, and so yeah, that definitely can keep it alive. And I guess thanks to all the social media, we will have a. A Facebook page and people who have experiences or pictures, they sort of, you know, they, they comment, and it's, it's absolutely great. It's sort of like a, a virtual community without the studios. <laughs> Terrific. And thanks so much for being my guest tonight, Joseph. This is okay, really an honor and a pleasure. Thank okay, you. Thanks for letting us talk about this great subject. Oh, my Bye-bye. gosh. How could we not? And I <laughs> hope this story touches many more people, and the power of preserving our cultural legacy is brought into the awareness of the powers that be through your work, and 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 for all the tenants of the former Carnegie Hall Studios. Okay, so thanks. thank you. Perfect, beautifully put, and thanks again for the opportunity. My pleasure. And hang in there while we all close right. out the program. For my all listeners, right. thank you. Next week, guests are Lola Fayemi, Program Director of Spark Inside and Coach Suparnama Holtra changing the lives of persistent youth offenders and bringing innovation inside the United Kingdom's criminal justice system. It's going to be a powerful program. Until then, thanks to our listeners supporting us and our guests. I want to end the program a little bit differently tonight. I want to end it with one of those messages from the poet. 
uh, uh, the poet of Carnegie Hall and the uh, the soul of the studios. I'll say good night, Joseph, and good night to all my listeners. And here's the message for all of us. And now a last word in case I die before I wake. Be of good cheer. These things are happening all over the world. It's global. It's national. It's global. I don't know what's causing it. It's a poet I'm supposed to know. Maybe this is dark of the moon today. I have no idea. We don't know when things exactly start or when they finish. I hope you remember me. I hope you remember me. Thank you.